You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. The story for you today that comes from the Finnish tradition. Uka was a pagan god, the god of the sky, the god of lightning and thunder. But every now and then he liked to disguise himself as a human and walk around on the earth. Now one day when he was walking through the birch forest, he saw a cottage. And through the window he saw a woman making bread. She had her arms up to her elbows in a bowl full of water and flour and yeast, and she was mixing it. There are a lot of motions in this story, and I hope you will help me. Can you mix bread? Yeah. Well, when Uka saw that, he had two thoughts. One is, he was hungry. And the other was, oh, fresh-baked bread tastes so good. So he knocked on the door, and she said, My hands are full of flour. Open the door and come in. So in walked Uka. She said, I'm working now, but you can sit down and pour yourself a cup of coffee. So he did. And he made small talk with her, mostly about the weather, because that was a topic he knew a lot about. But the whole time he was talking, he had his eyes on that bowl full of bread dough. Well, this irritated the woman. Now, she would be happy to share some bread with him, but she didn't want him sitting there drooling the whole time she was making it. So she said, you know, it's going to be a while. I have to shape these loaves. They have to rise. I have to bake them. Why don't you go walk in the woods and come back later? Luca took a last sip of coffee and left. Well, after he was gone, she could feel that that bread was ready to, to mold. So she dumped it onto the table. Can you dump it? And she began to knead it. And then she flattened it. And she folded it. And she flipped it over so the seam would be on the bottom. And she shaped a nice big loaf of bread. And she looked at that and said, well, that's too big to share with him. So she took her knife Thwack, thwack it, right down the middle. She pushed half of the dough aside, and she took the remaining half, and she kneaded it, and she flattened it, and folded it, and flipped it, and shaped a nice, medium-sized loaf. Oh, she said, I don't want to share that much bread with him. She took the knife, thwack, took half of that dough, and kneaded it, and flattened it, and folded it, and flipped it, and shaped a nice small loaf. But she still thought that was more than he needed. So she did that a couple of more times, cutting it in half and making a smaller loaf, cutting it in half, making a smaller loaf, until finally she had a loaf of bread about the size of a donut hole. Perfect, she said. I'm sure he's not that hungry. So she let it rise. It didn't take long. She popped it in the oven. It didn't take long to bake. And just when she was taking it out, there was a knock on the door, and in walked Uka. 
Oh, he said, oh, that smells so delicious. And then he looked at the tiny little donut hole sized loaf of bread she gave him. Oh, he said, well, um, thank you. He popped it in his mouth. Mmm, mmm. Well, that was good. Thank you. And he left. Now, as soon as Uka was out of the door, that woman started to feel bad. She thought, oh, he, why? She could, have, she could see the look of disappointment on his face. She could, tell, he, she could tell he was still hungry. And she thought, oh, why didn't I share more? Why was I so selfish? And she felt ashamed and sad, and she felt herself starting to get smaller. And the more she felt bad about herself and what she had done, the smaller she got, until finally she wasn't much bigger than a donut hole. <laughs> but then she thought, I'm not really a selfish person. I can do better. And as soon as she thought that, she felt a warm glow around her heart, and she knew what to do. She said, maybe, maybe Uka will come back. I mean, I think he's still hungry. Maybe he'll come back. So with her tiny, teeny hand, she pinched off a little bit of dough, and she started to make another loaf. Can you make a teeny tiny loaf with me? Knead it and flatten it and fold it and flip it and make a tiny little loaf. And she felt good about that. And when she felt better, she started to grow again. So she kept doing that, taking with her hand that got a little bit bigger every time, more dough and adding it in and making a loaf until finally she had a good-sized loaf. And she had enough dough left for herself and her family. So she made that into another loaf, and she had two loaves of just about the same size. And then she thought, you know, I could give Uka a little bit more. She took one last handful of dough out of her family's loaf and put it in, and for the last time kneaded and flattened and folded and flipped it over and shaped it. And she put those two loaves into the oven. Well, just as she was taking them out, Uka knocked on the door, and he said, oh, I'm sorry to bother you, but that one bite of bread you gave me was so delicious. Could I have one more bite? And she said, you can have a whole loaf. And Uka said, thank you, and he really meant it. And she felt grateful, too, because that day she had learned how good it feels to share. Well, I am awake and in my right mind. So, let's deal with this subject. I, um, I'm really excited about raising her in this church, Eden. I, I'm excited about Aspen being here, and I'm excited about the future of them singing up here with the other children. And I can truly say, too, that after five years of being in this state, my now adopted home, Minnesota, I am content and I love my home. I know that this is as far west as I will go now that I have a deep freezer in the basement and a shed, which I never had in my life, living in like apartments in the East Coast. I have a shed and a deep freeze, which means I'm staying in Minnesota for a long, long time. I love the bluffs down south in Minnesota that I've just discovered. I 
I love the pine trees up north and the sounds of timber wolves near our cabin. And I, I love hearing the loons. I've come to really like them. And, and I love that I task a trickle that starts the grand old Mississippi River. I, I love the intimacy of this mid-sized city with its eclectic nature and its great foodie scene. I love living in a climate that has taught me that I can, if I choose, wear shorts when it's a balmy 30 degrees. <laughs> I'm also proud to live in a state with the highest voter participation in the country. And we will see it on Tuesday. I'm also proud to live in a state that ranks usually first or second place tied with Utah sometimes for the most philanthropic and volunteer-oriented population in the, state, in the country. There is a generous spirit here that exists, and I notice it also when my sidewalk is randomly cleared and salted blew my mind and never knew who did it. I also am grateful for those who drive on the roads with me, who wave me in, which never happened to me in Jersey or Philly or Boston. But they wave you in, and I don't know always what they're saying by doing that. I'm like, what? They're waving me in. OK, oh, OK. I remember, I digress, but I, I remember somebody pulling up to me, like honking their horn really hard when I first moved here. I think I've been here like two months. Honking their horn really hard, this big, burly white guy in a camo hat. And I'm like, oh, hell, what is this all about? He's looking all serious and everything. And I roll the window down, and I go, what? He says, great bumper sticker. Welcome to Minnesota. <laughs> You've taught me so much. One thing I don't do anymore, is I try not to, I don't say, yeah, 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 when somebody's talking. You know, yeah, 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 in that dismissive, hurry up and finish kind of tone that we're famous for on the East Coast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead, I have learned how to say, sure, sure, sure. Yes, that's a real thing I learned. I say it all the time now. And I say it with a, a tone of affirmation and agreeableness that's different from yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> much better. There's still so much more for me to learn, and some things still do baffle me, though. So when thinking about kicking off this theme this month about sharing, um, I returned to a memory I had of my first week here at the University of Minnesota Medical Center where I was to teach chaplains. And they welcomed me with a giant cake. It was a delicious cake. People had seconds, some had thirds. But the next morning, there was a little piece of cake 
perhaps an eighth of an ounce of cake <laughs> left on the tray in the conference room. I found it curious. I found it odd, and I found it even strange because someone had put saran wrap over that little eighth of an ounce of cake to preserve it and keep it fresh overnight. Later, I learned through a referral from someone else who was not from here, told me about that phenomenon and said, go to Facebook and find the cursed last bites of Minnesota. How many of you have seen that site? The cursed last bites of Minnesota. Photograph after photograph with description after description of what was found in the break room, in the kitchen table at home, at the cabin. A ubiquitous bite. The last cursed bite. And you can tell people take great care in describing these situations. Sometimes they just go, really? That's the tagline. <laughs> Other times people write long, lengthy descriptions of what happened prior to this bite being left on the tray. And they should be writing their dissertation, but they write beautiful things. <laughs> Now, this tradition of a sharing culture, I love it because this sharing culture, this leave some for someone else ethos, this don't be greedy ethic, almost always ensures that I indeed get the last bite. When I see that last bite of a bar, did I say that right, bar? <laughs> when I see the last bite of a bar, I say, mine, mine, mine. Thank you, Minnesota. Now, the day I leave it will be the day I know I really belong here. <laughs> now, I'm just fooling around, but friends, conceptually, Sharing is considered to be a morally desirable behavior. We can almost all agree with that. As exemplified in the way that we raise our children, sharing is considered socially responsible. The cursed last bite phenomena reminds us not to be selfish. There is somebody else who may need it. But the concept of sharing has changed over the years. New layers of meaning have taken it further away from its material sense of sharing as dividing. New layers of meaning have been added to this word, giving it a current set of connotations. Today, sharing often means to be digitally sharing something, digitally participating. How many times a day have you heard someone or you yourself have said, could you share that photo with me? Oh, share that link with me. Updating statuses, uploading videos, sending messages, posting pictures, all these are called sharing. Sharing also refers to a sense of caring in a relationship which is tightly linked to a specific type of talking. 
about our emotions and our feelings. Now, you have heard the expression, sharing is caring. And, and someone has probably surely said to you in your work career or in your relationships or in your family, you know, you're not sharing enough with me, Bob. <laughs> Could you say more about that in the staff meeting? I'm not getting a sense that you're sharing all of your feelings with me. We also have a new sharing economy that monetizes our most intimate material objects and our livelihoods. We're sharing our homes with Airbnb. We're sharing cars. We're even job sharing. Think about this sense of sharing. It would not have been even accessible in many of our parents' or grandparents' generations. My Nana would not have come across the idea of sharing all the feels. Your grandmother and your great-grandfather, living around the turn of the previous century, would not have understood sharing to be a type of talk at all. The metaphor of sharing one's troubles would have been accessible, and obviously one shared one's troubles by talking about them, but the talk itself was not called sharing. We can understand this best by going back even further in time to the 16th century, when sharing meant dividing. Consider the similarity between the word sharing and shearing. The old English word from which sharing evolved, namely sekuru, had two meanings. One referred to the groin, that part of the body where the trunk of the body divides into two legs. The other referred to a monk's tonsure. You've seen monks with the tonsure haircut, where his hair has been sheared off. Sharing one's troubles then meant dividing them in two, giving a portion of your problems in conversation to a partner, thereby reducing your burden. The metaphor here is still physical, though. It wasn't until the 1900s that the word sharing started being used to refer to talk itself taking another step again away from the rather material, pre-metaphorical sense of the word. The dematerialization of the concept of sharing from an early emphasis on cutting into parts or cutting off to this contemporary sense where the exchange of information or feelings has played a major role in reshaping our whole social lives and our relationships between people. This relates specifically to the shifting idea of the self through the 20th century. Specifically, the emergence of the concept of self as a coherent core. We are a coherent individual core, the self. Not willed or guided by God, but a self secularized, urbanized, a self that can become self-actualized, a self that has a core and essence to it that is conveyable through talk, 
through talk and sharing. Now this quest for self-realization and self-actualization and authenticity has become the impulse, even the nomenclature of our society. There is nothing we can do without being asked to share. How many Instagram pictures can you see of your friend's food? How many? How many opinions can you give about the carpet cleaner on Yelp? How many? The impulse to share is becoming even greater. Dribbling, dribbling, dribbling. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. I'm sharing my water with my robe right now. Thank you. So if sharing is a, is a fundamental aspect of human nature, my question to you, friends, is if it's hardwired into our very being as humans, why do so many of us manage to suppress sharing impulses as adults? My little Aspen, down there learning how to be a good little chalice kid, right now, five years old, backseat every day from school, coming down Lake Street from Franklin. Every single time she sees a person on the side of the road with a sign, she says, stop. I have my special road money for them. She has managed to collect dollars and coins, but mostly single dollar bills that seem to miss, get out of my wallet somehow. <laughs> but they're all in the back seat of the car. <laughs> I counted 15 of them one day. Where did she get them? She says they're poor people's money. She defined that money as poor people's money. And if I do not make a U-turn, if I do not go over five lanes to reach that person before the red light, before the light turns green, I will hear about it for three more blocks from the back seat. I've had to do some very, very illegal driving in order to satisfy the needs of my daughter to take care of the poor people. Because sharing is hardwired into her brain. It's so bound up in human development. What happens to us as adults. Now, many of us are UUs because we did not share a need to rely on dogma to be spiritual moral beings. Amen? Amen. We did not share those values. What we do share, though, as Unitarian Universalists, is curiosity about ideas. Yeah. All right. And I believe that our UU history and our principles beckons us, invites us, demands us to share our intellect and our passion. My daughter is sharing her passion from the back seat about caring, but she's also intellectualizing it as well. Like, why are these people out here hungry, cold, homeless? Fundamentally, our very early history is rooted in doubting, curiosity, and sharing that doubt and curiosity with others. That's how our movement began. It began with us doubting theories and ideas about the nature of God, the nature of Jesus and the Holy Spirit that challenged the Trinity. We doubted and we shared this doubt to create a new form of religiosity that elevated our reason. The Polish brethren, who are our Unitarian ancestors, read about our history, read about our history. The Polish brethren, 
who first established congregations in the 1580s that openly challenged the doctrine of the Trinity, rejected infant baptism, said it was ridiculous, and debated the morality of military service from their pacifist devotion. Doubt it, curiosity, sharing new ideas. That's our history. A black man in Jamaica named Ethelred Brown doubted the Trinity as well. He was good at math. He says, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> and in the early 1900s, found out about Unitarian Universalism, about Unitarianism, and he wrote a letter from Kingston, Jamaica, addressed, and get this, to any Unitarian minister in New York City. It's a true story. And someone cared enough to, when they got that letter to find a Unitarian minister to hand him that letter. And he later moved to New York and became a Unitarian minister and developed Harlem Community Church and preached the good news of a liberating message of liberal religions to hundreds of black folks in New York City. 1920. Okay. A group of extraordinary women claim their role as ordained Unitarian ministers. Not with lots of encouragement from men, but they claim their role in the Women's Ministerial Conference organized by Julia Ward Howe in 1875. 21 Unitarian women founded the Iowa Sisterhood to share the good news of liberal religions throughout these Great Plains. No one told them they had to do that. No one encouraged them to do it, but they knew they had to share another message of domesticity with reason, domesticity with thoughtfulness. We share what we believe. We are the descendants of Unitarians and Universalists who have not hesitated to share their beliefs with the world and to build a liberal religious movement whose principles bind us together in a community rooted in sharing. Every single one of our seven principles. I looked at them yesterday as I was preparing this while holding that little baby with one eye, typing. <laughs> and we have shared with the world, every single one of our principles has to do with sharing. Justice and compassion, every single one of them has a human expression rooted in sharing, dignity, acceptance, searching for truth, interdependence, the world community, peace, justice, liberty, democracy itself, all principles rooted in this gift of the human nature. Now, this is all at 30,000 feet right here. It's all good history about sharing ideas. It's all up here. We can stay up here a lot, right? It's easy to stay up here. Woo, it's nice and easy. You don't have to get into the muck or nothing. But beyond sharing our beliefs, our values, and our social political positions, what else should we share as members of this congregation? Last year, I, I taught a class here at church. It was my, my first class here about sharing our stories. Have I got a story for you? Anybody here that was in that class? 
Hey, 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 there you are. Okay, a few people, great. Um, and not if, you, if this feels right to you on the memory. Each week we examine our lives and our stories through different lenses. In fact, at one point we used four different lenses to examine our story. The first lens was agency. We asked, what moments in your life did you act intentionally? When did you feel you were in control of an action? When were you deliberate about something that you were passionate about that you wanted? When did you make free choices to move you in a direction you sought to go? And the next lens we used was the lens of redemption. And that's not the hallmark redemption, you know, story that you see on television, but redemption. When did you climb out of a difficult situation and find a new way from the muck of your life? When did you change your thinking about your behavior and how you were perceived and how you were being treated and find a new self? Now, there was also a lens of communion. This isn't a communion you take with wine and crackers. This is the communion of community, family, cooperation, cooperatives. What stories from your family and community impacted your life and its trajectory? How have these stories of communion sustained you or hurt you? Finally, we looked at our stories through the lens of contamination. What external forces, traumas, have interrupted your life's expectations and dreams? When things are good and get worse, what impact has it had on your worldview, your relationship with others? Now, as you can imagine with this, these different lenses to look at our life stories through, the, the, your fellow congregants shared stories that were remarkable. I can remember so many of them so clearly. Can you as well from the class? You could just go right back and remember some of them. They were remarkable. They were heartbreaking. And they were revelatory. The power and the contents of these narrative disclosures, each unique, each sacred, each worthy of a committed listening ear, changed us all in that group. I am convinced that we were changed by the act of each person making a decision to share. They were our blessed bites a first universalist, and not a morsel was wasted. Crafting the text, sitting in that circle, uttering the words, forming the sentences, using the letter I, letting the tears flow, laughing at one's self-discovery, connecting to somebody else, finding similarities, looking in empathic eyes, touching outstretched hands, previous perceptions of one another overturned, love entered, recognition, being in awe of difference. Never the same we were. There were things that happened in that group for me that have changed my life significantly. I think of myself differently from a few of those conversations that are there. Never the same. Receiving the gift of authentic sharing 
is wonderful. Now, in preparing for that class one day, I found myself down in the library poking around, and I saw this very large loose-leaf binder on the shelf on a beautiful pedestal. And I'm like, wow, that looks curious. And of course, if, I'm, if you're 62 and over, you love paper, so you go over to it. You love loose-leaf binders. They're really wonderful. Remember them? The dividers. They're so, oh, I love paper. Oh, I love it, love it, love it. So I went right over to all that paper, and it was this big binder of paper, and it's about legacy stories. And I, I began looking through it, and I realized that these were the stories about members of this congregation, people I had shaken hands with, smiled with, nodded at, or had a chat with over coffee. On these pages were lives lived. On these pages were dreams that had been dashed. On these pages were prayerful paths that I wanted to know more. So I found out more from Ray and Hal. Turns out that Hal and Kathy and Peg and Kathy Manning, and Peg Meyer, and Kathy Cosgren met at Gigi's, our little secondary church, <laughs> in March of 2015 to respond to Daytime Connections survey, finding out that there was a major concern in this community about the visibility of seniors after retirement. In addition to these four folks, Margaret Berg and Velba Wagner and Margie Smith and Bob Friedman and Tom Satterstrom sought to listen to our seniors, to our elders, and chronicle their stories in that big loose-leaf binder. So far, they have listened to 120 members and listened to them share their stories that are in that binder in the library. In fact, there will be a display Starting today in the social hall, there'll be two of those stories that will come to life that'll be more visible for everybody over the next 10 weeks, featuring new stories each week about someone in this congregation. And we're going to be leading up to a major intergenerational event where these stories and the people who are a part of them will be shared. Sharing our stories is necessary. It's an act of community and it's a responsibility. It's necessary for the maintenance of this place, and it's necessary for the generativity for the kids to come. But that sharing must be authentic, friends. We must not sugarcoat our challenges, alter our realities, or dismiss the errors in judgment and behavior. Sharing our true, authentic story is hard work. It's not easy work, but it's mighty work. And it must be important to us, and it must be the most important thing that you can do for your families. I'm learning now. That I, I've been trying for years. Everyone's telling me, you've had a crazy life. You should write it down. And I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. How many people have told you that, too? Everybody gets asked to do that, and we go, yeah, who cares about it? But sure, sure, sure. <laughs> it's a great expression. I always feel so perky when I say it. Um, but I, I have to start doing it now. I'm 62 and I have a three-week-old kid. I got to write my story down. I have a responsibility, and we do too here in the church. 
whatever you share might be something that helps someone else. The tragedies and the joys you've experienced could become someone else's hope. It could be the star that could guide them into a new dream and a new constellation in their own lives. Who are we not to offer our stories and our truths that might help someone else grow and heal? That's what truth-telling is, letting others see what's in your heart. And you don't do it to be the victim of the story or the hero of the story, but to free yourself from the past and empower yourself with those listening to choose what comes next. So I'm going to just leave you with a little homework. <laughs> I love homework. When you leave here today, think about calling someone and finish telling them the story that you've only half told them. Take a walk as we start to get back into spring. Take a walk with somebody in your family and share the missing piece of information about another family member that they need to know. Write down your story, the stuff that's hard to tell, the stuff that you said, I'm gonna take it to my grave, Write down those things, even if you put them in an envelope like I do with so many things in my house. We have many, many books, and I, I put little things in between the books so that they'll find them when I die. Yeah. Even if that's the only way that you can share it, do it. Celebrate your story. Celebrate your essence. And as corny as it sounds, it's really true, sharing is caring. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text First Univ. That's F-I-R-S-T-U-N-I-V to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.